Garden Basics with Farmer Fred is brought to you by Smart Pots, the original lightweight, long-lasting fabric plant container. It's made in the USA. Visit smartpots.com/fred for more information and a special discount. That's smartpots.com/fred. Welcome to the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast. If you're just a beginning gardener or you want good gardening information, well, you've come to the right spot. Recently, we were discussing with soil pedologist Steve Zion ways to improve clay soil. And somehow it managed to morph into the benefits of worm castings. Are you familiar with worm castings? No? Give a listen to this. Yeah, then that's something uh, to emphasize, too, especially if people, and who doesn't, if you have clay soil, have troubles digging in clay soil, especially on a hot summer day. And you can only usually get down a couple of inches, and the usual solution is to add water and come back in a few hours of the next day and dig a little deeper until you get the hole you want. But the fact of the matter is, you can make that soil a lot more friable and easier to dig if you just add to the surface things like worm casting, compost, and mulch. Yep. It, 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 it's really, really amazing. I'll tell, I'll, I'll go ahead and tell my favorite story. Go ahead. Here we uh, go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, she wanted, this lady wanted me to do a soil test so that she would know what kinds of fertilizers to add and soil conditioners. And we went out to her backyard and we couldn't get a pick in, into the soil. It was really, really hard. So it had a lot of clay in it. And so I said, I'm sorry, I can't sample the soil to, to, to do a soil test. And she says, well, what can I do? I said, add earthworm castings. There's lots of soil biology and earthworm castings. And, and it's the soil biology that will break up your clay soil. And she, so she said, how much should I add? I said, well, earthworm castings are expensive. Typically, people can't afford to apply as much earthworm castings uh, as you would like to get the job done relatively quickly. And so this was in, in October. And then she calls me in uh, May and says, I've got to come over and see her garden soil. And uh, we went out there and she was able to basically just wiggle her hand into the soil. No pick, no shovel, just move her hand like it was basically just compost. And I said, well, what did you do? And she said, well, I followed your instructions. I added earthworm castings. And I said, how much? And she said, six inches. Hmm. So, And that's a lot. It was yes. a lot of money. I didn't realize this lady had, had those kinds of financial resources when I was there the first time. But this this basically shows you that it's, you know, if you add the soil biology and add enough of it in a very, very short period of time, it will open up that clay soil because it's the soil biology that creates those different sized pore spaces that's, that allows the air, water, nutrients, roots, hands, shovels into the soil. And, of course, uh, the winter rains, too, I'm at, I'm, I imagine, aided and abetted the, the percolation of the worm castings into the soil. Oh, yeah. I think I think that that was good because she was in in Northern California. The fall and winter is the rainy season, early spring, and so you know we were. This was one years ago when we were getting uh, nice winter rains, and uh, it 
you know, the, the, the soil biology was worked into the soil with just the natural rain. Well, for gardeners who are on a budget, but they want to apply worm castings, uh, what is the minimum thickness you should apply? Well, it, it can be a quarter of an inch. I think if, if you're really on a budget, what you want to do is make worm tea. And basically, that's brewing the material. I mean, and when I'm talking about brewing a worm tea or compost tea, I think worm tea is better. You, you basically put it in a tea bag. You can use pantyhose or, or cheesecloth or something. Uh, put it that put the earthworm castings or the compost in that bag. Put that bag in a five gallon bucket. Fill that five gallon bucket about two thirds of the way up with water. And then get an aquarium pump and pump air into that. Uh, it's it, you absolutely have to pump the air in. If you don't, uh, the types of organisms that we want in that compost tea need oxygen, and they will quickly use up all the oxygen unless you supply more with an aquarium pump. And but with an aquarium pump and the and the compost tea as you're brewing it after 24 hours where you may have had, let's say, a thousand microbes in that tea bag, you will now have a gazillion, zillion, zillion microbes. And so then uh, in the evening, uh, as the sun's going down, you water your soil with that material, and then you water it in really good, and then you water it again uh, the next morning as the sun is coming up to get that biology into the soil. And you do that a few times, you're going to get a lot more soil biology rapidly into your soil at, at minimal cost. How are you applying that? Are you just pouring it straight onto the soil or are you using uh, some sort of mixer to uh, mix it with uh, water from a hose end sprayer? However you want. You can use a, a watering can. You can use a compression sprayer. And, and the water should be relatively clean where it's not going to clog up the nozzles uh, because you've got that material in that tea bag. Uh, and then the, the, what you should also do with that tea bag is then the what's left of that, put that in your compost pile or spread that around the surface of your soil. But, uh, you know, it can go through a hose end sprayer, you know, however you want to apply it. Just make sure that when you're done applying it, you 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 try to to water that in All right. and you do that on a regular basis. And uh, it, it, it really is amazing what the the difference that that soil biology will make to a clay soil or any soil for that matter there you go lots of advice from steve zion soil pedologist also unofficially sacramento's organic advocate as you might be able to tell and we've got some good advice there on working with clay soil steve zion thanks so much for your help it's been fun as always fred You've heard me talk about Smart Pots, the award-winning fabric planter here on the Garden Basics podcast. They're durable and reusable. I've been using mine for five years now, and once again, they're being pressed into service in my yard. Yeah, I have this problem. I, I grow too many tomatoes for the amount of allotted sunny space I have for them. So those extra tomato plants go into the Smart Pots. I place them in scattered areas around the yard where I know they'll get enough sun which is a premium in my yard. And even five years later, I can pick up those smart pots, plant and all, and move them around without fear of the smart pot tearing or ripping. 
SmartPot's breathable fabric creates a healthy root structure for plants. And SmartPot's come in a wide variety of sizes and colors. Visit SmartPots.com Fred for more information about the complete line of SmartPot's lightweight fabric containers. And don't forget that slash Fred part, because on that page are details of discounts where you can buy SmartPots at Amazon. Okay, now I understand maybe you want to see the SmartPots before you buy them. That's not a problem. SmartPots are available at independent garden centers and select Ace and True Value stores nationwide. To find a store near you, visit SmartPots.com slash Fred. We have a quick tip on fruit trees from Tom Spillman of Dave Wilson Nursery. Recently, we chatted about the Hudson's Golden Gem Apple, a rare high-chill apple that is really very, very tasty and is known for producing lots and lots of apples on the tree. Now, those apples are on the small side, but as Tom explains, there are some benefits to having small apples. We, we started in our fourth year of the project, we started thinning because we had so many clusters that were blooming and, and setting, you know, six, eight, ten fruit in a cluster. So we started thinning all the fruit down to two. Um, but this is one that I actually went in a couple of years ago and thinned down to one because I couldn't get the fruit size up to quite where I wanted it. And that, that made a difference. But what really made the difference to me was the flavor. I mean, this was just an absolutely wonderful variety and, and again it's an old cider variety it's a variety that you could use to make um, um, apple pies it's a variety that you could just eat fresh and and when i start to think of um big you know I, I mean big fruit has never really impressed me big fruit is something they can get more money for than than small fruit but when you look at where the market's going with things like that if you look at cuties and halos mandarins and you start looking at at some of the things that they're marketing in a smaller size, our cherry plums or um, the pluary varieties are a good example of that. You know, they're, they're golf ball size or, or ping pong ball size, but they're just flavor packed and just absolutely delicious. So this, I think, would be a great variety and, and you know, would, would store very well in not necessarily even in a refrigerator, but in a cool uh, dry, you know, closet space or something like that. I think you could store it for several months through the winter. And what a great variety to put into kids' lunches. And I mean, if, if I would have had fruit like that when I was a kid, I don't think I would have ever eaten a Snickers bar. <laughs> That's Tom Spellman of Dave Wilson Nursery talking about the Hudson's Golden Gem Apple. Tom is conducting trials in Southern California, growing several varieties of high-chill apples in a very low-chill area of Orange County. And he's finding that there are several varieties, including the Hudson's Golden Gem, that do well in a very, very mild climate. If you want more information about his trials and other uh, picks for the Southwest, visit DaveWilson.com. So there was a shopping list on the counter. I was going into town, so why not pick up the groceries? Well, truth be told, I really do enjoy grocery shopping at a supermarket. I love to marvel at the amazing variety and selections of fruits and vegetables that are available most of the year. It's really quite a sight. Well, on the list was strawberries. Being a dutiful husband, I picked up a carton of strawberries at the supermarket. Big red strawberries all snuggled together in their little plastic box. 
Well, at dinner that night, the strawberries appeared in the salad. Uh, but there was a word of warning from my wife who says, you know, those strawberries, they're tasteless. And I had to agree. They were as hard as rocks as well with no juice. I should have known better because it's strawberry season here. But still, supermarket chains are dealing with commercial growers who can supply an entire chain of stores of product that who knows when it was picked or how long it's been in storage. Those strawberries were raised to grow quickly and look good, not necessarily taste very good. And I was kicking myself. I should have gone to one of the many roadside stands in our area that are selling strawberries right now, or even a farmer's market on the weekend, or heaven forfend, Farmer Fred, maybe you could grow them yourself. Well, you know, I do grow a lot of different fruits and vegetables, but not when products like strawberries are just so convenient and so available. I just shouldn't get them at the supermarket. That's all. And guess what? Those supermarket fruits and vegetables, those other ones, they may look pretty, but they're not nearly as nutritious as the ones you grow yourself. An old academic study has received new life among heirloom vegetable gardeners. Making the Rounds is a research paper conducted back in 1999 and released in 2004 at the University of Texas. The conclusion of that research, supermarket vegetables available in 1950 were healthier than the ones purchased in 1999. The vegetable's nutrient value, including protein, calcium, iron, and riboflavin, has declined in recent decades, while farmers have been planting crops designed to improve other traits. That's according to the study. The study was conducted by Dr. Donald Davis of the University of Texas Austin's Biochemical Institute. He concluded that the most likely explanation was the changes in cultivated varieties used today compared to 50 years ago. During those 50 years, there have been intensive efforts to breed new varieties that have greater yield or resistance to pests or adaptability to different climates. Or for the farmers I know, to be first to the market with that product. But the dominant effort is for higher yields. Emerging evidence suggests that when you select for yield, crops do grow bigger and they do grow faster, but they don't necessarily have the ability to make or uptake nutrients at that same faster rate. So those supermarket vegetables that were available back in 1950, well, now they would be considered heirloom varieties. But you don't have to go with all heirloom varieties. Many of the fruit and vegetable hybrid varieties that are available for homeowners now are not only great tasting, but have disease resistance built in and yet have a lot more nutritional value than the varieties available at the grocery store. Remember, as Dr. Davis said, those commercial varieties are primarily altered in order to produce way too much than it normally could, thus not being able to uptake nutrients at that increased production level. And trust me, homegrown varieties of fruits and vegetables produce plenty for you and your family. Just ask anyone growing zucchini about that. So if you want inexpensive, pretty vegetables or fruit for display purposes, well, then go get them at the supermarket. But if you want the absolutely best tasting, most nutritious fruits and vegetables, grow them yourself or at least get them at a farmer's market. And I'll tell you something, one bite of those from the farmer's market just might inspire you to plant one or two in your yard tomorrow. You have a small yard and you think you don't have the room for fruit trees? Well, 
maybe you better think again, because Dave Wilson Nursery wants to show you how to grow great-tasting fruits, peaches, apples, pluots, and a lot more in small areas. You could even grow them in containers on patios as well. It's called Backyard Orchard Culture, and you can get step-by-step -step information via the fruit tube videos at DaveWilson.com. And that's where you're going to find the closest nursery to you that carries Dave Wilson's quality fruit trees. So start the backyard orchard of your dreams at DaveWilson.com. We'd like to answer your questions here on the Garden Basics podcast. And Debbie Flower is here, our favorite retired college horticultural professor. And we got a question, Debbie, from Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Her name is Sarah. And Sarah says... I am a new gardener and listener, and I'm binging your podcast right now. I'm very impatient by nature, so this whole gardening business is a challenge. It took so long to grow tiny Parisian carrots <laughs> that are gone in one bite that I am now amazed and in awe that there are so many carrots always available and always cheap in the grocery store. You know, Debbie, that's the uh, dirty little secret of backyard gardening. Mm -hmm. It's not cheaper than buying produce in no. the store, but it it's, tastes better. And it's more satisfying. It's so much fun. And it's more nutritious, too. And there's more varieties available for growing things yes. uh, at home. And uh, Sarah has uh, several questions. Uh, here's one of them. Clover versus fabric pots. The question is, I grow everything in containers in my backyard, mostly fabric pots, Clover has grown up around them pretty thickly. I was going to cut it and trim it, but then I noticed all the bees that it attracts. The clover is growing tall up against all my pots. Is there a downside to having clover grow up against those fabric pots? If not, should I let it go all summer or can I trim it once in a while? When I think of clover, I think of it as a cool season crop. Uh, that would die mm -hmm. off in the summertime if we are talking the same variety of clover. There's a lot of things called clover. Yes, clover is a common name used for many different plants. But the fact that she's seeing lots and lots of bees uh, around it, I would expect it's trifolium, which is the genus name of of clover. Yes, the real <laughs> uh, clover. The real clover, yeah. right. Uh, I happen to be talking to a relative in uh, Minnesota, and it's still very springy in Minnesota, just, you know, maybe tulips are blooming. He said his lawn is covered with, with clover, and it's just a airport of pollinators coming in, mm -hmm. bees coming in and, and visiting those flowers. So that is a wonderful thing for her garden to have bees nearby. Well, one concern I would have about the clover you're growing, Sarah, would be, are there some sticky burrs on it? And are those sticky burrs sticking to the fabric of those fabric pots? And if it's not a burr, then it might be a, a pod that flings open and throws the seeds, which could get lodged into the fabric of those pots. So I guess the good advice would be to, when you see it growing onto the pot, to remove it from the yeah, sides of the pot. <laughs> definitely. I like her idea of cutting it back yeah. after it's flowered. And the majority of, like you said, it's a cool season crop. And so as things warm up, the flowers are going to slow down. The pods are going to, seed pods are going to start to form. That would be the time to cut it back so that the seeds don't get into the pot. And the that would resolve that problem, get rid of that problem. 
That's right. Now, as long as we're talking, if it is white clover, I mean, there's other things, too, like burr clover, which to to its name, it (laughs) does have burrs. And that's a weed. Uh, But uh, if it's judging, burr clover doesn't usually attract a lot of bees, though. Correct. Yeah. And it isn't as floriferous. It doesn't have as many flowers. Yeah. Now, if you do want to keep the bees around and for some reason you want to get rid of the clover, you could put in something else like alyssum to attract bees. Alyssum would be good for attracting bees. Mm -hmm. I have borage. Mm-hmm. Uh, at my yard, which is also tall uh, and also produces seed. I end up with it all over the place. So it is also something that needs to be managed to prevent it from seeding where you do not want it. Right. And also, we should point out, too, that as people transition from cool season crops to warm season crops, they may be reluctant to pull those cool season crops because they, they're doing something interesting. And in the case of a lot of cool season crops, they, they're probably bolting and flowering, attracting all sorts of pollinators mm-hmm. and beneficial insects. And you mm-hmm. just may want to keep some of it around if you, do, if you have the room. Right. She mentioned growing carrots, and it took a long time. If you just leave one of those carrot plants and let it flower, that will attract beneficial insects as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The, that family attracts a whole host of beneficial insects. Yes, it does. All right. So, Sarah, hope that helps and enjoy those fabric pots. Thanks, Debbie, for your help. <laughs> You're welcome, Fred. <laughs> right. We like to talk with Warren Roberts. He's with the University of California Davis Arboretum and Public Garden. He's their superintendent emeritus, and he knows his plants. And he can always find a plant that does well in many parts of the United States, not just here in California. And Warren, this week's plant of the week is one that uh, is very symbolic around this time every year. It's poppies. Yes, poppies. Right now in California, where it's native, it's also native in northern California, is the fried egg bush, sometimes called the Tillaha poppy, named for a, a small um, uh, resort in, I think it's in Ventura County in Southern California, but it ranges throughout Southern California, uh, along the coast and in the, in the mountains at the lower to middle elevations there. And it's the biggest flower of California, native to California, hmm. uh, and it looks looks just like uh, a sunny side up fried egg. <laughs> <laughs> it's maybe not a very dignified name, but it certainly is descriptive. Yeah. I've also I've also heard it called tree poppy, but it's not really a tree. It's a it's a shrub of kind of blue green uh, stems and foliage, and I've seen it up in north of Nanaimo in British Columbia. So it has a fairly a fairly broad uh, range uh, as far as hardiness to cold. Uh, it's a perennial, and uh, like all poppies, it's difficult to transplant. But once it is started, it can really go crazy. I think in, in Sacramento, there's a, there's a cliff uh, by the American River where it started at the top in the garden, has grown all the way down the cliff, and it's spectacular this time of year. So... There are so many other poppies, though. The California poppy is not in its full bloom right now, but it's a reminder that if you have California poppy, when it starts looking ragged at the end of the blooming season, don't pull it out. It's a perennial. Cut it back to the ground, water it, and then it will grow a sort of weak growth through the hot summer, and then it will also be blooming. But instead of the big orange flowers, it has smaller yellow flowers, but still very nice. Another poppy that we have is the uh, bush poppy. 
Dendromicon, which is one of my favorite to garden plants, actually. It's a, a medium-sized shrub, and it has, when it's in full bloom, it's covered with bright yellow California poppies. But the leaves are not feathery. They're uh, more like a laurel leaf in, in, in shape. And that's native to the islands off the coast of California. This is a subspecies. And then um, in the Mediterranean uh, chaparral areas of California. So we do very well in Mediterranean climates all around the world. And another poppy that's in full bloom now is the Mexican tulip poppy, Hunamania homarifolia. And this is a very nice uh, perennial plant. It uh, seeds around in the garden a little bit, native to the mountains in Mexico. It just seems to be in bloom almost all year in mild climates. It likes a little bit of shade in, in hotter, drier areas, bright sun or full sun in areas uh, otherwise. And, and the Honomania fumarifolia. There are other poppies. I think the prickly poppy is also in bloom now, the Argemony. And that, that one is native to North America and South America. It has very spiny leaves. It's well-named, prickly poppy. And it has flowers that look kind of like small fried eggs, mm. uh, white petals and, and a bright yellow stamen center. So there are the cream cups, which are native to California. Remember the poppy family, the stylomicon, the wind poppy, also from, from Mediterranean, California. Then the, the genus papaver. If we have a Californian one there called fire poppy. But papaver or papaver uh, is the most famous poppy, probably. Papaver somniferum, which is now called bread seed poppy or opium poppy. And there are uh, various selected forms of it, some of which look like big fluffy carnations. The Iceland poppy, papaver nudicoli, which is uh, successful in hot areas in the in wintertime. Uh, and then in, in cold areas, of course, in summer, the most famous of the second most famous <laughs> papaver would be papaver royus, the field poppy. This is the one that is called the Flanders field poppy, which uh, blooms in uh, fallow wheat fields in Europe where it's native. And uh, it was a symbol of the veterans of World War One. So that's just a, f a few of the poppies. There are, the poppy family also now includes uh, bleeding hearts and uh, golden eardrops, which uh, used to be in another botanical family. And then there are even some wind-pollinated poppies, the plume poppies, Maclea, which is perfectly hardy in, in most areas that uh, get winter cold, and then a tropical one, which is actually a, a tree with beautiful bark, beautiful leaves, and then these uh, plumes of uh, tiny flowers, and that one is Balconia. I remember seeing Balconia when I lived in South America. Uh, that's just a quick sketch of, of the poppies of the world, and I, I think I don't think I've covered all of them. No, but there's, so, the, there's the Oriental poppy, the uh, poppy yes, Oriental. Papaver Orientale, is that right? Uh, sure, why yeah. not? Yeah. <laughs> oh, my goodness. And there's even blue-flowered poppies, uh, the Mechanopsis betonisifolia from the Himalayas, and the Welsh poppy, which is in the same genus, Mechanopsis cambrica. We should point out, too, that uh, it, it, this is part of the confusion of common names. Uh, the uh, word poppy can be found uh, in several different genuses. Of course, the popover uh, being the most famous, but like you mentioned, the Matilia uh, poppy, which is a Romnia, 
and the California poppy, uh, whose genus I can't pronounce. Um, Eschwitzia, California. Eschwitzia. Yes. E S C H O L Z I A. That's right. S C H S C H O L Z I A. I remember the first time I tried to spell that, I didn't get it right. So then I learned it. Well, there you go. But that's that's our own California poppy. Incidentally, all members of the poppy family have alkaloids. Uh, not just the opium poppy, but even California poppy has a traditional use for painkilling in, in uh, traditional medicine in California. Hmm. Don't give people ideas, Warren. <laughs> and the seeds are edible. The one trick, though, is if you're being tested for opiates, you know, as a drug, it don't consume a lot of poppy seeds because even though you won't get get the effect of the drug, there are substances within the seeds which show up on the test. <laughs> so a little sort of odd um, hazard of eating the poppy seed. Good advice from your the, your drug testing mentor, Warren Roberts. <laughs> uh, poppies are fun. It's the poppy, the plant of the week, and there's a lot of them. Uh, check them out. There's probably some uh, near you that might be putting on a show right now, as a matter of fact. Warren Roberts is the superintendent emeritus of the University of California Davis Arboretum and Public Garden. The, they, like everybody else, is, you know, coming out of COVID and uh, things are loosening up. Uh, but the Arboretum itself is open seven days a week for you to... Uh, Peruse and visit if you're ever in Davis, California, and you can visit it online as well at arboretum.ucdavis.edu. Warren Roberts, thanks for the plant of the week, the poppy. You're welcome. Garden Basics comes out every Tuesday and Friday and is brought to you by Smart Pots. It's available just about anywhere, and that includes Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. And for Northern California gardeners, it's the Green Acres Garden Podcast with Farmer Fred. It's available also wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening, subscribing, and leaving comments. And thanks for listening.